0: You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. I'm Tom Hammond, your host and co-founder and CEO of UserWise. Uh, Today we have Keely Bunting with us. Keely, I think the first time that uh, I saw you was on like a, a Pocket Gamers and I was like, man, she is brilliant. I hope we can have her on the podcast sometime. And here we are. Uh, so i <laughs> really excited to, to dive into uh, today's podcast. But uh, before we do that, uh, I'd love to just hear your story. How'd you get into gaming? Um, yeah, well, what, what is the, the tale?
1: Sure. Um, Well, actually, originally, I studied electrical engineering with a computer option and uh, was working in oil and gas um, doing user interfaces for control systems. And I liked it, but I didn't love it. So I decided to go back. And I actually then went to art school. And I did a general first year, which was a lot of fun, Um, but then I actually noticed that another university in Canada had uh, co-ops with electronic arts. And so for my second year, I actually transferred into an animation program. And from then on, I started trying to apply to, to get a job at EA. And I actually, (laughs) I actually went to an event called how to get a job in games. (laughs) And I had a feeling that because of my background in coding and my background in art, that I might make a good technical artist. (laughs) And I asked a whole bunch of questions about that. And finally, one of the guys on stage got a bit sick of me and said, you know, there's a guy at the back, go, go chat with him afterwards. And, (laughs) and, and I did, and I was quite lucky because that in the end, that guy agreed to hire me. And so my first job in games was actually as a technical artist for the summer at electronic arts. And yeah, and that's, that was basically my, my introduction to games. Since then, I've worked as a coder. I've worked as a game designer. Um, I'm actually, technically a lead game designer right now but I'm also moving into an executive producer role <laughs> so I, I've kind of been around the houses you could say
0: wow well yeah. congrats on the, the new role and yeah yeah Lots
1: to learn <laughs>
0: <laughs> now do you feel like having worked in so many different roles makes it so we'll get to the executive producer role but like as as lead game designer do you feel like it's effective to know hey if i create this game design i know what that looks like from the art creation perspective and i know what that looks like from actually coding it up so like this is probably a a good idea that can be done quickly or this is a a good idea, but it would take, you know, way, way too long and we could never actually do that.
1: Yeah, I think it, it definitely helps on that front just to, you know, obviously I can't exactly know how long people will need, but I think it does in general give me a sense of scale on different things. Um, and I think the other place where it can be helpful is I think in some cases I have some of the terminology that allows me to be a little bit more accurate when I'm communicating with people in different disciplines. So yeah, both, both those fronts of kind of having, having just a little bit of extra empathy with the different disciplines I think is quite helpful.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Now you're the the lead game designer for Outplay's Gordon Ramsey Chef Blast right now, yes. right? Yes. Um, for folks that are listening, you know, I I think sometimes the line between like product manager and game designer and, and different folks can kind of be a little bit nebulous. But what exactly does the lead game designer mean?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. So, <laughs> I I guess first of all, I lead the game design team, mm-hmm. uh, and I am responsible for the game design and making sure that the game design is executed well. So, you know, it's a little bit of people management and working with the designers to make sure that we all do the best that we can. And it's also making sure that we're making designs that'll be fun for the audience. And it's also making sure that we communicate successfully with the other disciplines so that at the end of the day, we arrive at a a product that is enjoyable and fun for people to play.
0: Yeah, so as, you know, being responsible for the game design and stuff, do you have any thoughts on like, how do you put together like, what new features should be created? Uh, do you have any formulas that you know you could share with us? Of, <laughs> you know, h- how to uh, come about with? Uh, hey, we should try this feature next, or you know, this one next. Because I know, you know, for a lot of folks, um, you know, you get conflicting feedback. Like your analytics might say one thing, the players in the community are saying something else, and and maybe your gut is telling that you that you should go a different direction, like how do you effectively navigate, you know, all that feedback to come up with like, Hey, these are the things team that we should be working on, you know, next.
1: So I guess the the first thing is that the way that our team works is that we have a backlog and we actually have a long list of different features and important items that we want to work on. And uh, on our team, we'll have the lead game designer, a product manager, and a producer and an executive producer. And actually the four of us will all talk through the features and what we think needs to be placed where in the priority. Um, a lot of it will depend on, you know, what we've already got in there, how those things are working, like what's working well, what do we need more of? And obviously, you know, the, the major KPIs and if there's a certain KPI that we think maybe not where it ought to be then then you know we'll look through the list of features for the features that we think are best positioned to be able to improve that kpi mm, I
0: Really like and then, that.
1: yeah and then that goes higher up on the list <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know that's not something that i hear a lot of teams doing and i think that could be more effective because usually at least when I'm thinking of a feature is like there should be one KPI that we expect this feature to actually implement. Um, And usually you're like focused on one overall KPI and those are just the features you're at, but you know, having that backlog and along with that, Item, the metric that you think that it can, you know, track, so that when you decide, hey, let's switch gears from focusing on LTV to focusing on, mono, you know, rev retention. I don't know, whatever. Uh, but you can go back and find the features, you know, filter them down by retention features, and now go through them and figure out, okay, based on the time that we have and the complexity and whatnot, which of these do we think is the thing that we should try next? I love yeah. that.
1: Yeah, it's about finding the right fit the right fit at the right time for your game.
0: Yeah. Okay. So iOS 14.5 just came out, you know, everyone is going crazy. Um, and I've heard a lot of people saying, Oh, IP is the future. Um, you know, we're not going to be able to do trackable UA anymore. It's over. We've got to get, you know, the IPs so that we can get those audiences in and such. Um, now you've been working with an IP for a while. So, for folks that have never worked with an IP, like Gordon Ramsay, what's it like working with an IP?
1: So, uh, an IP can be really helpful because obviously, you know, humans in general we enjoy things that we're familiar with. You know, there's things that we trust, and so you know, if you if you're if you're lucky enough to have a brand that is like loved and trusted, like Gordon Ramsay, then, you know, you are going to get more eyeballs and more people that are going to come and have a look and see if this is a game that they'd be interested in. So that, that actually, you know, can be a pretty big advantage versus, you know, in some cases an unknown quality, It could be a super fun game, but it might just be that people have that extra level of hesitance about, you know, is this going to be worth downloading? Is this going to be worth my time? Is this going to be fun? So the other kind of just helps encourage people and and get them to take that leap of faith that, you know, we're always hoping for.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What's it like designing a game or designing a new feature within the context of the IP? Um, You know, did you or do you have to spend a lot of time like talking to fans of Gordon Ramsay to understand like what they're expecting and trying to like blend those elements, you know, into the game or, you know, what, what does that look like?
1: Well, I think when you're looking at working with an IP in general, uh, regardless of what IP it is, you really want to as much as possible, immerse yourself in the world of it. You know, there's there's people, but there's themes. There may be places and items and, and all sorts of things that make sense there. And I think what's most important for your game is for it to feel authentic and feel like it belongs in that world. And for as much as possible for your game to be sort of adding to it and for it to be friends with it, as opposed for... Uh, your game to be doing things that might detract from it or, or potentially damage that brand. So you really need to focus on that. Really, besides that, most of the time, you know, you can't go too wrong. Usually, obviously, there's going to be sign-offs and things, so there there's going to be people there to help you if you make a misstep. But if if you really sort of get into the details and try to know the the people and the characters and the world as well as you can, um, mm-hmm. then you know when you are suggesting ideas hopefully you would know yourself before before you kind of go to your stakeholders whether or not it's going to make sense and whether or not it's going to be a good fit
0: yeah thinking about the the sign off process and stuff like what has that been like working with, you know, Gordon Ramsay and obviously different IPs are going to be different. Um, But I I know one fear that I've heard in talking to some people about, you know, making an IPK-based game is this idea that, you know, especially in mobile free-to-play, like things happen so fast and and you've got to be able to react to, (laughs) you know, everything, you know, instantaneously almost. So, you know, how do you manage to like make changes and is it just all about the planning ahead or you know yeah. what is that process like yeah
1: i would say it's so i'm not i'm not yet a producer so i, I have to kind of put a big <laughs> disclaimer on this that this is not really my area of expertise um but from what i've observed in, in the in the games i've worked on with different ips is that it's it's mostly about the planning and it's it's coming to an understanding about what turnaround times can be like and also seeing where there's opportunities to streamline things and making sure that the right people are coming in at the right time and and just knowing that you know you can't just do whatever you want whenever you want you just have to always be planning ahead but hopefully if everything else is going smoothly, that, that shouldn't be a problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like it. We'll have to, we'll have to have you back, you know, in another year or so and (laughs) dive into all things producers. Yeah. Um, Yeah. One last thought on the, the IP stuff. Um, what sort of doors does it opt, you know open from a live ops type perspective like do you try to do things like hey gordon ramsey is doing this real thing in real life on this weekend we try to like match that with some sort of similar event or some sort of supporting event you know within the game on the same weekend or you know
1: i suppose i suppose with certain ips you you could do that i think um, we have tried to coordinate our marketing efforts in certain areas, so there, there has been that side to it. Um, in, in terms of live ops, it's mostly about thinking about what... I usually focus more on live ops in terms of what's going on throughout the course of the year if that makes sense. So, you know, thinking about cornerstones like Halloween and the winter holidays and Easter and the summertime. And so it's more of a question of, you know, what would that look like for this IP? And what kind of fun things would it make sense for them to do at these times of year? and um, But the other thing that's interesting with an IP is that you don't necessarily have access to all of it. There may be things that, you know, you can or can't touch. And so you're not necessarily always going to be able to tap into every single thing that is going on in a particular IP. So you kind of have to know where the boundaries are, if that makes sense. So there may be things that you can lean into. And if you can lean into them, I highly recommend it. But at the same time, there's other things where you kind of have to be hands off and just let it, let it, let it go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. And I don't think that's too different from, you know, any other game that's out there. Like, you know, as you get to know your audience, like there are certain things that maybe you've tried once and, you know, oh, I should never do that types of live ops event or, you know, things like that because they just don't like it. They don't find it fun. Um, So uh, switching gears just slightly, but it's still thinking in the same realm of casual games so i personally think that casual games may be one of the hardest genres to design for um you know for folks that are thinking of you know starting their own casual studio or working on casual games like what are some things that you've learned over the years of you know working on casual games like uh, chef blast here um you know what sort of things are important to players, and, and how do you seek to kind of understand your audience to give them, you know, the types of experiences that they want?
1: Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, 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 I'll try. I'll try to start at the beginning, and then you can come back to me again if I haven't fully answered your question. Yeah. Um, so I guess first of all, with with casual games. Um, often that implies a mainstream audience not not always but you know usually if especially if it's a free to play game you're wanting to have a lot of people be interested in your game and so that can be an interesting challenge because you don't want to be too niche, but you also don't want to be so bland that nobody's interested. <laughs> so there's, there's kind of that interesting balance of, you know, the right amount of flavor to have where it's enticing to a large group of people, but but not so spicy that you know nobody can deal with it. Um, so there's also the fact that with a casual audience, you're trying to create something that is you know immediately fun not too hard to learn and is something that people can kind of pick up and play for a little bit and enjoy it and put it down and come back later or if they want to they can they can play for longer but it's you know you may have some people that are playing multiple times a day or you may have some people that are playing a few times a week and so you have to find ways to engage lots of different play styles and behaviors and There's just a a lot of different things going on that you kind of have to sort of look at up close and from a distance, if you will.
0: (laughs) Mm. That's great. Um, Cool. Yeah, I I think you pretty much answered my questions there. Um, Have you ever released something that your casual players just really didn't like?
1: I, I I can't really think of anything in particular that anyone ever found offensive in any of the games I worked on. Um, there's been things that have just kind of gone out and like not really done anything either way, yeah. if that makes sense. Like there's kind of the ones that are just like meh. and <laughs> 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 and, and and you know you. It's, it's interesting because then the question is, well, you know, do we try to rework it? Do we try to make it better? Or do we just kind of accept that that's just what that's gonna do now? You know, is it cluttering things up? Should we yank it out and just replace it with something better? Like these are all mm-hmm. the kind of questions you should be asking yourself at that point. Um, yeah. and, and I think one of the things that, has been nice to learn at Outplay is to see that you know it's important to just not be too precious about things. Like just just because you've put a lot of effort into something, doesn't doesn't mean you have to stay with it forever. The you know there's there's games at the studio that have been going for over five years. You you have to be willing to go back, and and you know make new choices. Um, for a while, I was working on the game Crafty Candy, and this was before the time I was on the game. But they, you know, revised what the main characters looked like. They did a complete UI overhaul, and they you know revised the crafting system for the game, and you know I think those are all pretty large things to go in and rework. But you know, you have players that have been there since day one that are still playing after five years. And I think it's because of the fact that they're willing to go in there and evolve the game and make sure that it's continuing to work for the players.
0: I love that. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations? You know, I I think that's like one of the worst things well, it, it could be worse. You could have players revolt, but, you know, spending, you know, a couple of months developing out this new feature that you think is, is really cool. And then you get in and then it's just nothing like your players don't care. Um, and a lesser version is maybe you, you release some new type of event or something, some new game mode, and you see, you know, metrics go up for like a month or two and then, you know, right back down because players are like, Oh, it's, it's that thing again. And they just don't care. Um, you know, do you typically leave those types of features in? Is it like a, a change them up, strip them out, or or is it all very case by case?
1: I think ultimately it's case by case, but if, if you look at something like a set of events, you kind of need to weigh up <laughs> what your options are like you know that over the course of a year you want to fill in a calendar with a variety of fun events and in an ideal world it's going to be all killer no filler (laughs) Um, however for the sake of variety and ensuring that the players are experiencing different things you may actually say have a couple that you know always do really well That you put in there, but maybe you space them out with some of the ones that are maybe, you know, second tier Um, and perhaps you retire the ones that are third tier and you kind of make sure that you have enough that you can keep an interesting schedule going. But but just kind of quietly put to bed the ones that aren't that aren't working as well as you'd like. (laughs) Yeah.
0: How do you typically communicate those types of things to players?
1: Well, with. Events will sometimes have messaging around what events are upcoming, <laughs> and obviously when the events begin, then there's you know the the medallions and the pop-ups that come onto the screen to let them know what's what's happening for the next period of time and how long it's on for. I I, I don't think you necessarily have to say, hey, that event you didn't like. Don't worry, you'll never see it again. <laughs> <laughs> like there's some stuff that can kind of go quietly into the night. I don't and. And you know, I don't. I don't think that that necessarily needs to be discussed publicly. <laughs> I suppose if someone was very concerned about it, they could reach out to player support, and and then we could then know that you know maybe we'd made the wrong decision. Um, but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> that's
0: cool. Yeah easier to do when it's an event than if it's like a full-fledged feature too which is one of the reasons why i I do advocate if whenever possible if you can release a feature as an event first just to like gauge interest and get some data and revise and improve it a little bit before you like fully release it it can be a a powerful tool there too
1: yeah and a b testing as well can be quite nice if, (laughs) if possible it depends what kind of a system you have set up that's not always possible but yeah the more the more testing the better
0: Definitely. Yeah. I, some games that are, you know, very social, very competitive uh, can be difficult to pull off some AB tests of certain things without your players talking and having a bit of a revolt when they figure out something is priced differently or they get different rewards or things like that. But uh, you you can definitely get clever. Um, Yeah. You know, I'm just wondering you know, thinking a little bit about your your career and how you like started as an artist and then a developer, um, how has you know doing game dev like impacted you as a game designer?
1: Um, well, I mean, I guess I guess we talked about this a, a little bit at the beginning, but um, I think that it's, it's been really interesting to work within all the departments. I just to clarify, I was never technical. I I was a technical artist, but I never made art. Mm. (laughs) When I was a technical artist, I was making tools to make the artists jobs easier. Um, and, and so, but I, you know, was sitting with them and I could see, you know, where the pain points were and, and things like that. Um, and as, as a coder, I was, although that was only brief, I, I got the opportunity to, to get involved in, in sort of working on different features. And it was through that where I started to ask a lot of questions as a coder. I used to ask lots and lots and lots of questions to the designers. And to be honest, it had never occurred to me that I could be a designer. Um, but I had asked so many questions, strangely similar to how I got my first job in games. <laughs> I had asked so many questions that finally someone broke down and asked if I wanted to be a designer. <laughs> and, and and it was quite funny because it had it had genuinely never occurred to me that that I could be um even though, you know, when they had had uh they'd had, these opportunities for people within the studio to pitch ideas. And I always made sure that my name was first on the list to go in and pitch ideas, um, but, but becoming a designer hadn't occurred to me. And so when it was suggested and I thought about it, I was like, actually, you know, this this pulls together the things that I love really nicely. Like I'm, I really love the art. I, I like the artistic creative side of it. And I, I find the technical challenges really fascinating. So as a designer, it's been really cool because I get to pull it all together and, you know, work with those people so that, you know, as a group, we're able to make really cool stuff. And I find that quite fun.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, technically, I was doing a leading question. Oh, to sorry. My real, to my Did real question. It correctly? Oh, no. My real, <laughs> my real question behind the scenes is if you want to become a game designer, what is the best things to study in school or to pursue after? Like, you know, what should I do to actually become a game designer?
1: well i think I think what's really nice about the game designer role is that there are quite a few different routes that people can take um now nowadays, there are game design programs that you can take at college or university. um you know, when I was younger, that wasn't available, but that's a thing now. <laughs> um, so I had to do the very long route <laughs> but uh but also um, other designers that I've worked with have come from art backgrounds where they've started off working at a company as an artist. Um, Other people I've met have actually come from a code background. Other people have come from quality assurance. And because, you know, they've gotten accustomed to seeing all the things that have gone wrong and sort of all the insides of all the games, you know, they really have a good sense of what would be Good for making a game. So it, it's kind of nice because it's actually quite flexible. You can go straight into it, you can come at it from the sides. They're all valid paths.
0: Agglomeration <laughs> of lots of things. I love yeah. that. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit and spend most of the last time just talking about live ops because I feel like the gaming industry. And and you've actually been a part of it as we've gone through this shift. Um, You know, once upon a time, it used to be you make a game, you ship the game, and then you kind of move on to working on the next game. Uh, However, I feel like we've really evolved into this idea of games as a service or, you know, long-term relationships with players where we're working on the same game for years and years pushing out new contents updates experiences to players and they're hopefully you know engaging with all that content and, and hopefully doing some activities that also generate some you know revenue monetization for us too uh, so it, it's kind of a, a win-win a uh, relationship with players so to speak um, which we've kind of evolved to call live ops um, So, you know, leaning into your background and of successfully running, uh, you know, a number of games for a number of years, uh, what, or or I guess maybe how should I be planning out a live ops schedule for a game, you know, what does a good flow look like uh, for someone that is maybe either new to live ops, new to games as a service, or, you know, even for people that have been doing it for a while, but they're, you know, kind of questioning like, yeah, we, we've got some basic stuff in place, but I see other people are doing more. Like, where should I be focusing my time on? What are the types of things that I should be doing such that I'm, you know, just creating better experiences for my players. Sure.
1: Um, So at least with the types of games that I've been working on recently, I'd say that there's two major tracks. One is content and the other is events. Um, With content, you really want to be thoughtful about the fact that you are creating a treadmill and that as soon as your game goes live, there's going to be people consuming that content at various speeds, (laughs) and you need to be thoughtful about how quickly your team can create that content at the quality level that you want and get that out to them. Um, And you wanna make sure that it's sustainable because I, I have to admit that one of my rookie errors way, way back when uh, working on this kind of a game was I actually designed a game where the content was quite laborious to create. <laughs> and, uh, and it really caused a lot of grief for us because it, it basically made the game like not sustainable because it was too expensive and it took too much time. And basically, you know, in that particular case that were collectibles that were supposed to unlock in each area and creating all the collectibles and the art related to them was just taking a long time and required a lot of art resources and we weren't going to be able to keep up the pace that we needed to to keep our players engaged so you need to be mindful of what your team is capable of staying on top of um, in terms of events you also need to be mindful of what your team can do um, so it, it, Starting off with the types of events you want to think about, so as I mentioned previously, you have some people that will play a few times a day, and you'll have people that will play a few times a week, and everything in between, and more and less obviously. So it's good to be thinking about, you know, what kinds of events are interesting and different each day of the week. What kinds of events are interesting and different over the course of a week or or sorry, week to week and, you know, month to month and so on and so forth. So that depending on what style of player you are, you're always going to be coming back to something that's new and interesting. You then kind of want to take an even bigger step backwards and think about the entirety of the year. And, and I mentioned that before with the different seasons and I think it's a really nice way to connect with people and their real lives to think about the seasons that are happening. Obviously we're always going to be off with Australia, <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, if you imagine the fact that, you know, if I look at the, at the window and, and you know it's it's winter time, and but it's also winter time in my game. There's something kind of cool about that, um, and and something that makes the game feel like it's connected to the real world. So I think when you can have seasonal events, that's that's really great for your game, and and really sort of helps blur the boundaries between the game and and your player. However, that doesn't mean that you can get in, well, I mean, good, good for you if you can, but if you have the resources to, to sort of go crazy and celebrate every holiday all year round, that's amazing. <laughs> However, uh, in all likelihood, if, if you're working with a smaller team, you, you probably need to pick your battles and think about, you know, for your team, how many events a year are reasonable? How can we space them out? so that we're not trying to do too many of them at the same time. Are there maybe some that should be merged? So for example, you know, some games might do a Christmas and a new year's, but you know, if you've got a smaller game, maybe you just make that like a winter festival and and you kind of hit both and, and that's sort of what you can do for that time of year. And Maybe for the first year that you've got your game out, you pick four main seasonal events. And when you come around the next year, maybe you spruce up those seasonal events. Maybe you add, say, four new ones. So now you have eight. Or if you get to a point where you've got a full calendar, then you can start going in and swapping out the old ones and making totally new ones that are are kind of fun. So there's all sorts of ways to kind of be clever about where you're applying your effort.
0: That's really great. Um, Thinking about those like seasons or holidays and things, um, how do you, you know, play fair with, you know, like the US has Halloween. I don't think other countries have Halloween. you know, the U.S. has Independence Day, that's July 4th, but uh, Brazil also has Independence Day, but it's September 7th. Um, How do you navigate like country differences around holidays and things like that? Um, Or do you just kind of maybe pick the holidays based on where your audience is located primarily? Or, you know, do you have any tips around navigating that or like which ones you should pick?
1: So, it's sort of a combination of factors um you do want to look at where the majority of your audience is based and be thoughtful about that but at the same time you don't want to do it in a way that is off-putting to people in other parts of the world so for example halloween is very much a north american tradition i say that because i'm canadian (laughs) Um, (laughs) Uh, but it's it's you know it is a north american tradition but actually it's also celebrated in the uk to varying degrees and in different ways um but there's also a lot of other places where it still might just be fun even if it's not necessarily like a a major part of their day-to-day life um for something that's So, sorry, but so in that case, you just kind of say, hey, it's for the fun of it. Let's just let her rip, you know, and and you just kind of go for it and say it's it's Halloween for everybody. You know, if you're not into it, that's cool. Um, If you then go and look at the things that are maybe more specific to a particular country. um, So for the 4th of July in general for the games that I work on I prefer our games to be a little less specific so um, we may have certain things that allude to it so some fireworks and maybe you know some red white and blue but we won't necessarily cover it in flags (laughs) and And instead of you know referring to it as the Fourth of July, we may refer to it as you know a fireworks festival or something of that nature um, so that if you want it to be that, sure, and if you don't we've tried to be inclusive by not jamming it down your throat so we you know it it may be wrong, but that's just the way that I've tried mm-hmm. to sort of navigate through the middle of it <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I, I remember one time I was looking at some some metrics and I can't even remember which game this was for, um, but they ran a, what I really consider to be like the simplest live ops campaign that I've ever seen. And it was just an in-game message that went out to the Brazilian players on their independence day that said, you know, happy independence day from your friends at so-and-so games, enjoy this free gift of a thousand coins. And I kid you not, it it boosted metrics like retention and other things were up for their Brazilian players. Like they appreciated that. Um, but it, it, you know, just a simple little event where I, I think this was like a company based in, you know, Denmark or Sweden, somewhere over there. Um, and the Brazilians appreciate it. They're like, you don't live in Brazil. Like you're thinking of us on our day we're celebrating and they just felt connected with the game. Um, and it was just super cool to see. Um, but have you, you know, ever dabbled in something like that?
1: Yes. On one of the previous games I worked on, um, we, we tried a segmented event that was for Australia. Um, to be honest, I don't exactly remember how it went. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think I, once again, it. I guess there's ways to be clever about it and it depends how sophisticated your segmentation is and how much resources you have. But in the end, what we concluded was, at, at least for this particular event was, you know if we're gonna go to the effort of putting together all this art and doing all this design time why not share it with everybody Mm. um but I appreciate that like what you're describing is a really lovely touch so you know a light touch that is segmented I could totally imagine working and and being quite nice so you know maybe it's just a matter of of us you know imagining more sophisticated ways to deal with that
0: yeah, I believe they. I believe they set it up the one time, and then they just like had it repeating every year after that, or something like that. So it was it was definitely like a long run game where they'd had a lot of time to you know really nail in their live ops, um, but still still kind of cool nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so. All this stuff is really great. Um, (laughs) But let's say I have a game that's like in soft launch or whatnot. Like, what are the things that I systematically need to do or programmatically, you know, to actually get ready to do something like this or like what sort of tools or systems do I need to actually be able to, you know, deliver these types of things when I want them to be delivered? Um, Like, do I just need to like make sure that I have all of my stuff done for the upcoming winter festival, you know, at the end of November so it can be, you know, Sent out in the client update in early December or whatnot, like you know. Or are there are there better ways? Like, what are the things that uh, you know games actually need to be able to be run live?
1: So it can be a mix of things. There's the option of sort of packing things into the build ahead of time and setting them up with unlocks. Um, That's probably the most rudimentary option. Uh, The next possibility is remote settings. And and that sort of will allow you to make some adjustments on the fly. And obviously, uh, sort of over the air options. So it, it, it really depends how sophisticated your, your back-end setup is. In, in our case, we have a, a bespoke solution for our studio, but I know that different different studios are using different tools for that.
0: Yeah. And that's something you guys kind of built in-house? hmm Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, some listeners are probably disappointed. Um, yeah. Are you able to, you know, talk a little bit about what you can do with your bespoke solution in case others need to build their their own, or is that a little bit proprietary?
1: I probably shouldn't get into that too much, but <laughs> I suppose if you play our game, you'll see all of our wonderful events and <laughs> and, and and sort of see see the results of it. It's, yeah. um, I mean. It's it's really at the end of the day about empowering the development teams to be able to to go in there and efficiently manage what's going on in the game and and make sure that we're able to deliver an enjoyable uh, experience for the player.
0: Yeah, is that difficult from for like QA testers to be able to like go in and actually like verify, like if I've got this winter, you know, event set up um, and it's going to be delivered in 20 different languages. And, you know, three weeks from now, are there good ways to actually like test and verify that everything is set up? Like something that I don't think we talk about enough is is live ops errors because I think they happen um, and yeah. they can be very costly. Uh, I've heard you know sometimes people copy the ninety nine dollar value into the the ninety nine cent one and, and it's not caught and that can you know wreck your economy and you know anything in between. Um, so you know, testing these types of things, I think is very important, but like, are there, are there any good ways to effectively do that? Or, you know, is all that kind of magically baked into your bespoke tools as well? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, well, well it is, but (laughs) we, we kind of have a combination of things. We, we have debug tools in the client. Um, so, so there's, you know, the ability to jump around in time and the ability to turn certain events on and off and, and things like that. Um, but also in the in the back end system, we have a concept of staging as well as as deploy. So we are able to kind of work within a sandbox and and, and QA is able to go in there and make sure that everything's playing nicely before before we put it out into the world. And you know thing, things are always going to happen, but it, but at least you can kind of have a, a a few things in in there that you know you give it as as good of a shake ahead of time as you can.
0: <laughs> so, do you guys test in both staging and like your deploy? So, okay, so I, I'm maybe dwelling a little bit more than I should, but um,
1: yeah, I've, also, I've, talked, I've also never done QA. It's one of the other <laughs> departments I haven't been in yet.
0: <laughs> I, I might have to get some QAers here, but yeah, you should. Um, yeah, we, we really should. Um, yeah, you know, I've heard some people are like, well, we like to test in our staging environment and then we move everything up to production. And then I talk to other people and they're like, well, we don't like that because sometimes we have things that are in staging that aren't in production. So even though it worked in staging, it is broken in production. And then I have other people that are like, I only like to test in production because of that reason. Um, But it's really tedious for me to, you know mess around with it so i'll like change the date of the event in production so that it goes up on my you know device and things sounds like you guys have gotten around that by allowing them to change the time and trigger the events and stuff Uh, almost like you can time warp uh to where the event is which seems like it could be really useful but you know is, is there like a good approach that you've heard or, you know, feel free to defer me to, you know, talking to a QA, QA expert or whatnot, but. I think it's
1: one for the experts, <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, I, I actually, I think I should just stop there. I think, I think that's one for the experts, there, you know, there's different strategies for, for all these things. And, and it, it's really for the, for the QA team to pick and, and, and figure out what works best for them.
0: Now, Keely, you are passing a great opportunity. You could be a hero to many, many studios if you could solve all and prevent all live ops errors, you know, on this podcast.
1: Magically, yeah, I wish. (laughs) I might need a few more years of experience before I can do that.
0: (laughs) Uh, We'll we'll bring you back once you're a producer, you know, that's where you gotta figure everything out, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. When do you uh, start the new role? Is it, uh,
1: uh, I'm learning over the next few weeks. So I guess within a month or so, yeah.
0: <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah. Have you learned anything in terms of like the main differences between like a you know producer going to a game designer? Is that like a, a natural progression for a lot of designers? Um, and again, yeah. yeah.
1: I I think in some cases it it can be. Um, In this case, I think they were keen to have someone with a strong uh, product focus, Mm -hmm. because as an executive producer, I'll be responsible for... um, working with the entire teams or the entire development team for the for the games that I'll be responsible for um so having that familiarity with the guts of the game and how the games are made I think is is very helpful but of course there's all of the (laughs) producering um I have I have obviously you know been in the stand-ups and dealt with the backlog and seen aspects of it before and have stepped in here and there um you know when people have have been away but um there's definitely a lot on that side of the the people management and the and the sort of roadmap side of things and contracts and all sorts of fun things that I'm, that I'm getting to learn about. So it's, it's a whole other side of game development that is new to me, but I'm pretty excited to learn about.
0: Yeah. Well, we're, we're super excited to, to watch your journey. Um, That was actually, you know, all of my questions. I do have one last official question which is, of course, because we're on the Mastering Retention podcast. Um, do you have, you know, maybe one tip or trick that you've learned over the years that has helped to boost retention in your games?
1: Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I think it's really important to look at your first-time user experience because, so much happens so quickly when people first download the game and people make decisions really quickly. And, you know, if you don't start off with a good day one retention, you have no chance at a good day seven or day 30, or at least your chances are are significantly reduced. So if you can really hone in on what's going on in the first few minutes, first hour You know at at a push that a player is going through your game and what's happening and where the drop-offs are happening and and really try to attack those and 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 pull them apart and see what's going on and see what you can do to try and improve those spots then i think i think that that's a a good way to to try and lift everything
0: that's fantastic (laughs) Love that so much. Yeah, I I think it's so important to frequently and often return to your first-time user experience. There's uh, so much that can be learned and improved upon there. You know, especially for me. It's easy to get into the game and I'm, you know, more of an engaged user and as more features and things are coming in, you know, it's very easy for that first time user experience to, you know, just become cluttered or confusing and, and we got to always be going back to it. So I I love that. It's fantastic. Well, Keely. thank you so much for, for being on. This has been super fantastic. I feel like I learned a lot. I actually took some notes during this one too, um, <laughs> so I, I, I want to, you know, thank you again for, for joining us. Uh, if folks do have any questions, is there a, a good way for them to contact you?
1: Sure. Uh, my email is keeley.bunting at outplay.com.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Hope you have a great rest of your night.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye.